The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, The Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Oscar Edmondson and I'm joined today by Isabel Hardman and James Heal. So the big news in Westminster today is that Chris Pincher has resigned as an MP and this comes after he lost his appeal against a common suspension. Now I think everyone saw this coming but Isabel could you start by maybe explaining to us, sort of taking us back to that night at the Carlton Club and uh, going through what those allegations were that have been made against Chris Pincher? Yeah, so this was the final incident that uh, was the sort of last straw, really, uh, for a lot of MPs with Boris Johnson's premiership because he did not um, uh, he did not respond to Chris Pincher uh, being accused of groping two men at the Carlton Club and then uh, resigning as deputy chief whip uh, in the way that most Conservative MPs had expected him to. Uh, they felt that he. Um, firstly, didn't um, suspend Pincher as a, as a Tory MP uh, quickly enough. That uh, there was a sense that the um, uh, that the claims were it not being belittled, not being dealt with sufficiently seriously enough, and it became very clear um, very quickly through a variety of sources that Johnson had known um, that Pincher had um, allegedly problematic behaviour. And there were quotes like Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, uh, that the former prime minister was alleged to have uh, produced uh, before appointing him to the role of deputy chief whip, which as well as being obviously an an important government role, uh, is also a role concerned with pastoral care and discipline. So possibly the worst um, job you could give to somebody who you were also calling pincher by name, pincher by nature. So this hastened the end of Boris Johnson's premiership. It was something that his allies were still very bitter about in the days after um, Johnson resigned, uh, saying that they felt it was a, a completely out of proportion reaction from the Conservative Party to this particular incident. But really what it was, uh, was just the, the last straw um, uh, at the end of months and months of, of scandal, turmoil and dissatisfaction with the, the way that the Prime Minister approached uh, integrity in politics. So for Rishi Sunak, this is a, a sort of Boris Johnson legacy issue. It's also um, now obviously a by-election. To a certain extent, having it as a by-election rather than a standards issue that continues to hang over the Conservative Party is is the better of two unpleasant situations. Uh, But uh, as Rishi Sunak has been saying today, uh, no party does well in a midterm by-election. Certainly you don't do well when you've got a by-election created by these kinds of circumstances. And uh, as we know, the by-elections are becoming quite a time-consuming hobby for the Conservative Party now. Yes. So onto that by-election. This is triggering a by-election in Tamworth, James, which could be quite an interesting constituency. Uh, Can you tell us a bit? I will. But firstly, I mean, you said in your opening question, Oscar, that it was obvious to everyone this by-election was looming. It was obvious to everyone, except for perhaps uh, Tory high command, because there's been a big sort of back and forth about who's the candidate going to be. And Eddie Hughes, who's MP for Walsall North, was selected to be the candidate for the upcoming general. But of course, this by-election was looming. And now Eddie Hughes has had to put out a statement today saying that 
uh, he will not be the candidate in the by-election, mm. but still hopes to be the candidate in the general. So the Conservatives, first of all, have to find a new candidate, given this by-election is probably expected next month. They then have to tell the voters that this person is going to be there for the next 10 months, maybe a year or so, uh, and that somehow they're very committed to Tamworth, uh, but that they want someone else to be changed at the next election after already forcing them through this pincher contest. So yeah. that's all quite good from the opposition's point of view, I think, in trying to make this uh, about, you know, Tamworth issues, etc. Um, I think, yeah, in terms of the actual seat, obviously, it's been trending to the Conservatives. The past six elections, I think it's voted more Tory every time. It's got a majority of 19,000. Um, and so I think it will be, that's quite tricky grounds for uh, Labour to, to make up for you know it's not like some of those blue wall seats um, to say for instance Dominic Raab's seat which has been really you know the Lib Dems did really well at successive yeah. elections um, so that's the that's the key thing I think in terms of what the Conservatives do to try and um, boost their chances it's the same thing we saw earlier this year when we had three by-elections on the same day ideally I think for them is they hope they kind of split Labour's focus Labour seem to be going all guns for the mid-bed seat so if they can have the mid-bed election by-election the same day as Tamworth, that will be the Conservatives' best chance, really, to try and hold one or two of those seats which they currently hold. Um, and I think that what is perhaps also interesting is the timing of this is that it's, I think it's meant to be, hasn't been confirmed yet, but if it is the mid-bed by-election, it'll be October the 18th. Now, yeah. that's just, I think, a week or two after Labour's conference. So will they be distracted elsewhere? Uh, it also puts issues of, you know, would Labour, for instance, try and hold up, you know, these seats as an attempt to, to take them as a rallying cry? Obviously, there's a danger then of expectation management. And we saw from Uxbridge where Labour was expected to take that seat, the dangers of expectation management backfiring. And this is the ninth by-election that will be uh, contested since Rishi Sunak took charge, Isabel. I mean, what, what does that say about the Tory party going into a uh, election next year? I mean, it obviously says that there's... Um... <laughs> has been a bit of an issue with standards and um, authority in the Conservative Party, to put things mildly. Um, in terms of the kind of conclusions from these by-elections, you know, one of the things about by-election results, as well as local election results, is that they prove the argument of anyone and everyone. And uh, so we've seen after um, the Uxbridge by-election, and it was highlighted at Prime Minister's Questions yesterday, um, that... Uh, that the Conservatives have concluded that campaigning against things like ULES, uh, so local um, uh, hot potatoes, is a really good way of holding on to difficult seats uh, where the incumbent has quit in difficult circumstances. Um, now, they, they obviously don't have a ULES zone in every single constituency. There are LTNs and other um, traffic uh, measures, clean air measures, greenery of, of one sort or another that they might want to uh, campaign against in, in in certain areas, but that was you know the conclusion they reached from Uxbridge. But then they could have reached a completely different conclusion um, from the Selby and Ainsley result uh, about how the Conservative red wall uh, might be looking at the next election. And so um, you'll be getting a lot of people gearing up their various arguments about where the general election campaign needs to go, um, depending on what could actually end up being, as with Uxbridge, an extremely narrow result. Um, and that actually doesn't bear any relation to a general election air war. You're not going to have a general election air war actually on ULES because most people in the country don't know what it is and don't care about it. And while all this is going on, Rishi Sunak is in the Midlands at the moment, hailing the long-awaited deal with the EU, which lets British scientists join the Horizon Research Fund. Isabel, what what, what do you make of that? Is, is this a big victory for the government? 
I think it's I think it's a big relief because it was something that was hanging over the government. It was something that MPs were asking questions about in the Commons as soon as it came back. Actually, this week, um, trying to to chivy the government along. It's um, it's a big program. It's eighty five billion. Uh, it means that uh, British scientists can apply for grants again. Uh, there was real consternation that it would mean that. Um, uh, even Rishi Sunak's own desire for Britain to become a science and technology superpower um, was going to be extremely difficult to realise if if Britain wasn't part of um, this science research programme. Uh, so Sunak, who's been calling it the the right deal for uh, the UK, uh, is really pleased. He said it's an essential step in rebuilding and strengthening our, our global scientific standing. Um, and for him, it's one of those things that he can point to saying, you know, we, we've solved this difficult problem because it has been going on for two and a half years, uh, the uncertainty over um, whether Britain will be able to to rejoin it uh, or not um, as part of that sort of uh, immature sort of post-divorce relationship that it was having with the EU at the time. So this, again, is is a sign that Sunak is, is hoping to, to use um that Britain has uh, matured its relationship with the EU alongside the um, the Windsor framework that he's obviously also very proud of. Um, in terms of sort of uh, raw politics or um, his serving, uh, standing in the Conservative Party, it doesn't really make a huge amount of difference. Uh, but he's uh, given he's a very sort of technocratic politician, he'll be very pleased to have ticked something else off on his to-do list. Yeah, well, as well as sort of developing that more mature relationship with the EU, James, He's also going to be jetting off this weekend to India for the G20 summit, sort of cementing that Indo-Pacific tilt, which is more generally a theme for the government. You wrote a, a brilliant cover piece last week about India's relationship with the UK and how this could be the start of a, of a special relationship. What should we expect at the G20? Also today, Rishi Sunak has given an interview to Indian media talking about the relationship he has with Prime Minister Modi. Um, there's some banter, of course, about, you know, children sporting cricket, etc., which country or football, uh, England, India. So there's all that kind of stuff. And having Britain's first Asian uh, Indian Prime Minister um, is obviously going to be something of a flashpoint and interest the local Indian press and yeah. locals as well. Um, but I think really it's about the, the priority right now is about the trade deal. Can that be done before the Indian elections next spring? Um, this really, the G20 is the last chance for Modi to kind of portray himself as a strong and powerful leader for a strong and powerful nation. So trade will be a key part of that. Um, there's been reports this week that there will be a second uh, visit for Sunak to uh, New Delhi, uh, potentially next month, another bilateral. Um, and I think really it's just a chance to try and cement those links. We've we've seen them in things like you know people in recent years that post Brexit. I think now about thirty percent of uh, visas in for for work and study are from India to Britain. Um, and so it's just trying to find those different areas of agreement, playing up um, those areas which they can work together. There's a lot of work being done behind the scenes. I know of at the, the you know, things like Foreign Office to do with um, India recently passed. Um, some decarbonisation legislation, how Britain can help with that, things like services, etc. So away from the cameras. But in terms of what will be seen before the cameras, what can be agreed, it's about really using the best arts of diplomacy. Um, Modi wrote a piece for uh, the UK Times today, the Times of London, um, talking about you know, the importance of getting an agreement on cut climate change, but also doing so in a way that doesn't really patronise you know, or, or sort of belittle the Indians and all of this. So there's opportunities, there's challenges as well. Um, but really, it's the hope that at a time when Rishi Sunak had plenty of de- difficulties on the domestic front, perhaps he can get a new narrative and a new deal with India abroad. 
Isabel and James, thank you very much, and thank you for listening.